Good morning, and thank you for that nice introduction, Brett. <clears throat> Excuse me, and thank you so much for um, coming out this morning. I want to welcome you and welcome those joining remotely. If you would turn to Genesis chapter 10, Genesis chapter 10, and we're going to cover 11, because Brett said I got to do it. So we've got two chapters, and when I first looked at this, I had this weird feeling, and I was trying to think where I had this feeling before, and Mariana and I were, before kids, we went to Europe, so drifted into a, a restaurant and had a nice meal. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, does this waiter really like us? Because I, I was a little paranoid after 9-11 about, you know, how do people perceive Americans, right? So we had dinner and it's, everything went fine. And he said, I'm going to bring you a cake. So we didn't get a dessert menu or anything like that. I'm thinking, okay, well, when you're in Italy, what do you think? Somebody, favorite cake? There's tiramisu, right? Easy. I'm thinking, it's got to be something great. So we wait a couple minutes, and this gentleman comes back. He puts something in front of us, and I looked. I went, what is that? It was a fruit cake. <laughs> is that a thing? I thought, who serves fruit cake? So I had this feeling when I opened up to Genesis chapter 10, and you might as well, right? Because it's genealogies. It's a lot of names, okay? So I've got my job cut out for me this morning. Basically, it starts off in Genesis chapter 10. And by the way, 11's got quite a bit of genealogy there as well. So just just bear with me here as we get started. Um, It says, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. So we know that these lines now are going to be traced from father to son, father to son, etc., all the way down. And so in order to set some context, because this is a lot of material, and quite frankly, I feel like with a message like this, less is more. I'm going to give you the purpose and the reason why all of this is in there, why we need to know about it. You don't need to get into historical detail. I'm not, a, I'm not going to give you a technical explanation of this. It's, it won't be as useful, and you can certainly go get that on your own. But <clears throat> what are some of the consistent themes both pre- and post-flood? And so, first of all, there's man's sinfulness. And unfortunately, man's sinfulness persists through the flood. That's not going to change. It's something that we need to keep in mind because of the way that God sets up his plan of salvation. And so the purpose of the flood was not to completely eradicate sin, but to signify something much greater, which we're going to get to. It says in Genesis 8, 21a, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will not curse or again curse the ground anymore for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. That hasn't changed. Secondly, we see the worship of the Lord. And this was, I think, first introduced with Cain and Abel. Um, We see the worship of the Lord when Noah steps off the, the ark. He 
sets up an altar, and he offers up clean animals and some clean birds. We see that in Genesis 8.20, and we see that there's a pristine new beginning for the surviving family through worship, and it's honoring to the Lord, and it pleases him. So this is something that was prior to the flood, and this is something that's going to be consistent after. Thirdly, we see the long-suffering of the Lord. Um, Noah and his family recognize the Lord's long-suffering. We see the judgment of sin and sinners. Creation and the flood are two events that the Apostle Peter focuses on in his second epistle. It says, knowing this, excuse me, uh, 2 Peter 3, 3 through 7 Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? And this is happening now. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continually as they were from the beginning of the creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the word that then existed was deluged with water and perished. So we see the long-suffering of God then. Of course, now it seems like forever. How long will God wait? And yet Peter says, by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept into the day of judgment and to the destruction of the ungodly. So we see the long-suffering of God. We also see God's desire to save humanity. The ultimate meaning of the flood event signals, emphasizes God's desire to save human beings. And although it's a clean start, it's a massive judgment, and a lot of people perished, it's a new beginning, and God's plan still continues throughout. And it's even broader in scope than Noah ever would have completely imagined. Again, let's look at the Apostle Peter. In 1 Peter 3.20-22, through 22, he refers to this time. He says, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now listen to this. Baptism which corresponds to this, now saves you. What is Peter saying? We see that the gospel is intimately linked to the flood event through the judgment of water and through the ark. And I'm sure you're familiar with the type-anti-type relationship. Show of hands. People have heard this, right? Common type, Moses, anti-type, Christ. Understand? So... Basically, what we see here is the water is a type of baptism, and the ark is a type of Christ. Noah and his family survived the water. We saved by water by being in Christ, in the ark. That ark was the line of demarcation for those who were saved, because the water lifted them up, and they were safe. So Peter makes this connection. And then finally, well, not finally, Next, God's blessing and following dominion mandate. We see in Genesis 9, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. 
Lastly, God's covenant. And obviously, um, in Genesis chapter 9, we went through it last week. God said to Noah and his sons, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. That's not going to change. And this is something that we can latch on to today. And I think that these connections help set the context for this next chapter. This next chapter is the beginning of nations. So we've had beginnings of many things here in the book of Genesis. This is the beginning of nations. And this is called the table of nations. The table of nations. Because when you lay it out in visual format, it looks like a nice clean table. And I'm going to give you a think, I think, just the reason and the purpose, the organization behind it, why we should be paying attention to it without going through it in infinite detail because I'd lose you within the first three verses, honestly. <laughs> so, But we take a look at this table. It is truly unique. There's nothing like it in Near Eastern uh, ancient literature. Nobody had ever attempted to put together a genealogy like this. And this is something that as Christians we can look back uh, as a Judeo-Christian body and basically say, look, this is historically accurate. There's nothing in here that contradicts any history that we know about. And so people have, have definitely studied it. Um, why is it that it's partially genealogical, but that is not its main purpose. So if we read through it and we'll read parts of it this morning, it picks up, if you recalled a few weeks back from the main genealogy in Genesis chapter 5, where the listing from Adam to Noah and his sons were there. This picks up there and continues on through, and it foreshadows the calling of a very important new character called Abram or Abraham. So now we see God's connecting to the beginning of humanity all the way through the flood, and now he's going to launch and commence his next phase of his salvaic plan in a, a new way through Noah's lineage. So we see it foreshadows forward to Abram, but it's also linked retroactively to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 where it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. All of this is within this message. In laying out the dispersion of the nations across the known world at that time, God sets the stage for the commencement of a preordained plan to bless all the nations of the earth. So he starts the nations with a new clean slate, but it's also a kickstart to his plan. It says in Genesis chapter 22, we'll, we'll see in some weeks from now, 22.18 says, In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Abraham. And we see this table of nations is going to end with his family. And his family is now going to have a whole new story, a totally different calling as he goes throughout the earth. But let's get back to the table briefly. The total count of the nations is exactly 70. So if you were to 
think about that for a little bit. 70 is a very symbolic biblical number. It stands for and represents totality and completion. And you'll notice if you were to list these, this table out that some of these names listed are not just people. They're nations. They're people groups. And not every person listed has their descendants listed. It stops at a certain point. So the table of nations is not intended to be exhaustive. In the table, if you were to look at Noah and his three boys, 16 names are second generation, 35 names are third generation, three names are fourth generation, two names are fifth, and 13 names are sixth. And so we see that it's meant to be a summary and more of a theological concept than anything else. And so when we, we get to these parts of the Bible, I know we have a tendency to breeze through them because they're not that interesting. But from God's perspective, the, the way that this is constructed is extremely important. All of these names have an interesting historical value. I've sat through some of, of uh, longer talks about this, and it, it would put the normal person asleep. But the larger theological purpose is the reason why it's included. And so here we are today. We're going to slog through it to the best of our ability. Now, down the road in First, Corinthians, First Chronicles, excuse me, uh, chapter 1, this table is retold. It's reformatted with a couple of changes. But in Genesis 10, we see Eber recorded as the father of the Hebrews. In First Chronicles, we see Abram, that is Abraham, now has this honorable title, and his family line is much more detailed because now we have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs, all of that history is played out, and so we see that it has a much longer and much more familiar to us um, history and chronology. All right, so there's a few other quick reasons that I just want to touch on before we start reading through some of this. The genealogies confirm the historical accuracy of the Bible. We can look back and we know that these people lived. They were real human beings on this planet. This is not made up and fabricated. And by knowing family histories, we can differentiate the Bible from other literature. It's not, mytho uh, it's not mythology. And that gives me a lot of confidence that this is not a fictional story. It's about real people, and it's a God that deals with them as historical people in their time, but with us as well. Uh, genealogies also confirm prophecy, and so the, the Messiah was prophesied to come from the line of David, and we know later in the gospel telling of Christ's lineage, we have one in Matthew that goes back to Abraham, and then we have a longer one in Luke that goes all the way back to Adam, that this was important for establishing Christ's lineage all the way back, not only as a link from person to person, but as prophetical. Things that actually happened and were foretold a long time in advance. 
And then in general, this table of nations is an extenuation, it's a continuation of the, of the dominion mandate. God had told Noah, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And we see this recorded and playing out before us. So if we look at this, Genesis chapter 10, verses 2 through 5, and I'll read just the very beginning of this. These are the sons of Japheth. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras. And I'm going to stop there. We'll just start at the top level with these families. So using Mount Ararat, located in eastern Turkey, uh, these, these people generally spread north to the Black and Caspian Sea. They went to Asia and Europe. And so you can plot it out. It's really cool and interesting, but if you're Western European in descent, chances are this is sort of your more immediate bloodline. And uh, if we hop down to Genesis chapter 10, verses 6 through 20, the sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan, and we'll stop there. But there's some familiar names here. And we see that the sons of Ham settled in Arabia and northern Africa. And sadly, um, some of these verses for many years ago in this country were used to justify the slave trade. And so there was a terrible uh, just legacy within the Christian church of quoting these types of scriptures. And it goes back to the curse uh, that was upon Canaan. Uh, it was basically, uh, Brett went through it last week where um, Ham had displeased his father. But Canaan was the one cursed, not Ham. And Canaan, we know, was the land where there are a lot of different people groups where if we go into, uh, if we look at them, they're the ones that the children of Israel ultimately displaced after 400 years of being a really um, dark and sinful people. God judged them, moved them out, and the children of Israel inherited that land. So that's the sons of Ham. And in this section, there's a little bit of a break in the genealogy. It's verses 8 through 10, and I'm going to read them. Verse 8 says, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehobothir, Kala, and Rezin. And when we look at Nimrod, this there's a lot of just misinformation. What do we really know about Nimrod? Pretty much nothing. Only what's here in the scripture. There's very little, uh, there's been a lot of uh, connections made with Nimrod. I think I've heard one where uh, he's the father of Tammuz and the whole Christmas story is tied into it, but we really don't have any factual evidence of these things. A lot of it is just a lot of um, talk and stories. But Nimrod, what do we know about him? He's, a, he's a, a man that's clouded in mystery, but he's brought up here in this section for a very good reason. Nothing is really factually known about him. 
other than he's from the line of Cush. He's described as a mighty man. He's described as a mighty hunter. And we see where his kingdom came from and that he was a conqueror. And he was the first, uh, you know, prior to Nimrod being brought up here, most of the authority was centralized in family relationships and treaties. But now Nimrod brings a new paradigm because he's an empire builder. He's the kind of guy that wants to dominate over other men. He wants to display power. He's, the language here is of a king, of a mighty king. And you see other types of kings displayed uh, throughout history as mighty hunters and mighty men. And you see all these reliefs and different portrayals of them. Well, Nimrod was one of those guys. He was a power player. And so we see he's an empire builder, and he's described in terms that we see here. His name means we shall rebel. And, you know, Jewish tradition has him as the builder of the Tower of Babel. Whether that's the case, he certainly had something to do with Babel. We don't know if he was the, in charge of the building there. But the point is, he was an empire builder. And it's important for us to get an idea of what God thinks about empire building. Because today we see that everywhere. Everybody's trying to build a platform. Everybody's trying to get eyeballs and followers. And what, you know, what we see a lot of is people are just making a completely different person with this, with this sort of, could be an online presentation of themselves or how wonderful their lives are. It's, but, so we see that. But in this case, it's completely destructive because what God is trying to remind us through not only these verses, but throughout, is that we need God. This power play from Nimrod was apart from God. It was not part of God's plan. And so we see Nimrod's legacy of destruction. In verse 10, we see that his kingdom was Babel. This is Babylon. And down the road, Babylon is going to come in and capture, uh, lay waste to Judah. And that's in 586 B.C. under uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. And then in a, he brings up in verse 10, excuse me, verse 11, Assyria, which is one of the cruelest nations in ancient history. And that's a historical fact. Assyria came in in around 732 B.C. and started to deport Israel in the northern kingdom. And they came back later and completely took those folks captive. And so we see two historic enemies of the nation of Israel tied up and linked to one man, Nimrod. So he has a legacy of destruction. We're going to see about that in the next chapter, but for now we'll continue in in Genesis chapter 10, verses 21 through 31. And I'm just going to start again with just the top uh, grouping. To Shem also, verse 21 again, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Ashur, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. And we'll stop there.
The sons of Shem generally settled in Northwest Europe, modern-day Turkey and the North Caspian Sea. And these are, this is the line that God is mostly focused with throughout the rest of the book of Genesis. We see the other two families, Ham and Japheth, but they're more role players at this point. And the focus is on the lineage of Shem because this is the one that God is going to work through. And we, we can trace Christ's lineage through that. Um, the context here, I think, really gives us an idea of the reason why God laid out all of these nations in a table for us to view. And once every blue moon, when you breeze through Genesis and you say, Ha! Genesis chapter 10. I think I'll pass. And I completely understand why people do that. It would do you some good to just breeze through this and just have in the back of your mind that God was working in this. You don't need to know all the details. But God's plan is tied up in the table of nations. He started the human family, got them sort of a jump start, and we see in here his story. So... Let's flip the page to Genesis chapter 11. This is a little bit more interesting, verses 1 through 9. Everybody's heard of the Tower of Babel. It is a fun, sort of interesting story. It gives us a lot of idea of what God thinks about um, how we approach him. And so the Tower of Babel... In Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, it says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And this is just hyperbole. This is not literal truth. We can see in the previous chapter that some of these people groups had their own language. This is talking about an area. Okay, so just just understand it has that context. And as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. What were they building? Well, back in those days, they built these massive structures called ziggurats. And I'm sure you've seen photos of a ziggurat. It was a massive structure that was huge in diameter and length and height. And they would just build them up and up and up, not literally into the heavens, but extremely high. And they were typically in a city, in a town, as the highest structure representing God. And they had a stairway that would go all the way to the top where they would offer Uh, you know, do these different uh, rituals and pay homage to their gods. So we see that hyperbically, these things are described as reaching into the heavens because there's always that desire. Man always has this God-shaped vacuum. And I know that many of our uh, Folks that we know and love are secular and may, may not believe in God, but there's always been this desire throughout human history to worship something. And so these 
structures were meant to function as a gateway for the gods to come down to the earth from the heavens. We, you know, you remember the song Stairway to Heaven. Well, it wasn't man climbing up. It was providing a conduit for God to come down and meet with man. And so they got it in their heads. We're going to build, we're going to start this huge construction project. And we're going to make this all about appeasing our gods. Why? Because as these populations started to grow, they wanted to be blessed. They didn't want to disperse. They didn't want to work and go out and spread out. They wanted to stay together and they wanted to approach God in their own small way. Does that ring a bell? I think human beings want to do that a lot. And so these structures provided visible assurance that God was present among the people. But our plans reveal who we are, what we want in our view of God. We know that their view of God, or lowercase gods, was wholly inadequate. Wholly inadequate. And their types of gods, the Mesopotamian view of the gods, uh, these gods had needs. They had to sleep. They needed food. They had sexual relations. They could become intoxicated. They were ignorant of things outside of their scope of attention. This is not the type of Lord God that we serve. It's a completely different concept. And it caused them to gather together in a way that God took notice. And so Kenneth Matthews, uh, I don't know if the quote's up there, and that's okay. I'll just read part of it. It says, Genesis 11, 1 through 9, mirrors the attempt of humanity in the garden to achieve power independently of God. I think that's a theme that, you know, has not changed from time immemorial, that we see this everywhere. And so, not unique. But what came out of this? Well, they had a view of God that if they were to go up and provide food, drink, whatever the case might be, that God would bless them. And now all of a sudden you had this codependent relationship. Man has a role to serve in some unique way, and then God had, or these gods had a responsibility to provide protection and, and resources, etc. So it was this symbiotic relationship where if I just do what I, what I think God wants me to do and I serve him in the way that I think is appropriate, I will get what I want. And that is something that I think uh, even modern Christianity falls into the trap of. And it can happen with all of us because, let's face it, if we, we think logically that if we do the right thing, the right thing will happen. And of, co- of course we know we have a concept of God that is a father, that is good, that is loving, that will bless. But it's more than that. There's a, there's a selfish motive associated with what they're doing here. And this is something that God was displeased with. So we see that they said in, in Genesis eleven four, 4, come let us build it ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let's make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face 
of the whole earth. Let's make a name for ourselves. There was a podcast that came out a year and a half ago, maybe it was just a year ago, um, uh, called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hills. And I'm, you know, not making an advertisement for that. I would just humbly recommend it to you if you have the time to go through that because it is a very good case study in a church, a Christian church in North America that just took off. It just blew up to about 15,000 people in a short period of time and then like that was gone. And the level of spiritual abuse and corruption that was going on at that church is just, it's heartbreaking because when the church broke down, of course some of them kind of became independent but there was a void and a vacuum because of the damage that had been done that could not be reversed. And so the, um, the fact that we have this sort of um, culture of celebrity pastors, we have a culture of, of pastors that want to make a name for themselves. This is the wrong business to be in if you're trying to make a name for yourself. This is a servant type of role. It's a mission-centered role. And Christ, interestingly enough, yes, he has a name that has, that has gone throughout the earth, but he didn't publish a book. He did not, um, he didn't write down one thing. He was a servant. And pastors that are in it to make a name for themselves, they're, they're pretty easy to spot now because their name is out there ahead of Christ. And so it's a shameful thing. But this is the type of thing that was going on in Babylon. So what's the issue here? City building and city dwelling is not the issue. Gathering together is not an issue. God does not condemn that. And essentially, God had an issue with their approach to worship and the fact that they were way off the mark. And so why did God scatter the Babylonians. God didn't scatter them again, like I said, because they were together. He scattered them because they're attempting to appease God, lowercase g, by meeting perceived unmet needs, as if they could give something to God and expect something in return. And you and I know that there's nothing that we can offer to God in and of ourselves. And there is no unmet need that we're filling that he needs satisfied. God is something that is other. He is holy. And although he loves us, he does not need us. And we're not checking the box by coming to church. So, you know, a lot of times, and you know, if you've been a Christian for a while, sometimes you go into these modes of, you know, what's in it for me? I've been putting a lot of time in. Sometimes we just go down these. I'm only speaking for myself. I'm not going to speak for anybody else. But there are times along the way where we just get into a wrong train of thinking with our worship with God. And it's happened to me more than once over, you know, a few decades where I need to be corrected. 
So we see the issue. We see why God scattered the Babylonians. It says the Lord came down. Now this is, again, language that makes fun of the Mesopotamian view and way of worship. And so I'm going to move real quickly here. The Lord came down to see the city and tower which the children of man had built. And so this is really just a literary device. God moves in and he scatters them by confusing their language. So it says at the very beginning of the chapter, they all spoke one language. They were on the same sheet of music. They all liked each other. They got along. They understood each other. And now all of a sudden, nothing's working. And they all took their shovels and said, I'm out of here. And they all went their different way. And the thing that they were trying to protect, they lost because their approach to, to, to God was completely unacceptable. Well, what was God's assessment of them in, in um, the next verse? Verse 6 says, And the Lord said, Behold, they're one people. They have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose will now be impossible for them. God's not threatened by the people. He assesses their motivations and reasons that if their degraded form of worship is allowed to continue, they will be open to more and more delusional and dangerous practices. And this is what God does if he loves us. He gets involved and kind of like, you know, smacks us around a little bit. Tries to give us a perspective. Try to give us a little bit of guidance. Sometimes it comes hard. And that's the experience, I think, that we can all benefit from if we're paying attention. Well, Ironically, the thing they lost was the thing that they were trying to protect. How do we tie this into the gospel? Well, we're going to see, we don't have time, you can certainly go through it on your own, to read um, the rest of about Shem's descendants. And we want to, and that transitions into Terah's descendants. And it ultimately ends up, uh, with Abram and his son and Lot, the son of Haran. And so there's more to come on the, their stories in future chapters. But I'll leave you with this. Babel was a man-centered city. We cannot make a name for ourselves with the Lord. And I, and I find it very interesting that what was destructively true about the experiment with the Tower of Babylonia becomes constructively true about the church of Jesus Christ. Why? Because in Acts chapter 2, we see everything reversed. So here in Genesis chapter 11, the languages are all confused. Everybody disperses. How does God resolve this? Just turn quickly to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And I will wrap up by just reading, starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were 
dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So everything's become reversed. And we see through the power of language, speaking, being able to communicate, God starts his church all over again with the Holy Spirit coming down and people from all over the place hearing the gospel in their own language. They're like, these are Galileans. I didn't, last, last I knew they didn't speak our language. And so it's the gospel message that God starts with Abraham and his family. We come to Christ and obviously you know the story But here, this Tower of Babel, this confusion, now becomes something that unifies human beings. And I have to leave you with that. You've been very patient. I know it's a a lot of, um, it's a tough couple chapters to get through. And I thank you for being patient. I appreciate your time here this morning. I hope you're blessed, and with that, I think I can invite the band to come up. And while they're coming up, let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your word. I thank you for the gathering of this people. And I'm grateful that we can have a chance to open up your word and read it. And I pray and ask that you give us a a time of worship as we close out this morning. Be with those who cannot make it here today. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.